So, marriage. Uh, as you saw in our text today, this is um, probably one of the uh, foremost texts on marriage uh, in the New Testament, um, particularly talking about the uh, I guess interrelationship between how God thinks about marriage and how we ought to think about marriage. And as we uh, are going through our series in biblical relationships, that is the key. But I actually want to put something different to you this morning. I want to put to you that uh, this is, I guess, a thesis statement, if you will, uh, that you will not get Christian marriage unless you get Jesus' love for his church. Let me say that again. You won't get Christian marriage. That is understand it. That is experience it. That is be able to do it unless you get, that is understand, experience, and be a part of Jesus' love for his church. That's essentially what this uh, text is uh, for us today. Now, there's a whole lot of stuff um, in there, and I reckon I could preach about 30 sermons on this one uh, passage and not cover it all. So with that in mind, uh, we are just going to have a look at a few things uh, in the text, and I, I guess I want to get to the heart of uh, what the Apostle Paul was trying to teach us here and uh, how we might respond. So three things uh, that I want to share with you. Uh, the first is the goal, the goal of marriage, and I think we'll see that that's actually renewal. It's actually doing things God's way, not our way. So the goal of marriage. Uh, the second is the difficulty of marriage, and that comes down to when we think about our responsibility. And there's some really challenging stuff for us, particularly in our day and age, uh, in the text there. So that's the responsibility of marriage, secondly. And third, I want to talk to you about the answer, the answer to marriage, which is God's plan of redemption and how he works that out in our lives. So before we get into it, um, uh, I read something really interesting uh, this uh, this week uh, on uh, marriage, and it was it, like during a pandemic, and they described it like this. They said, marriage in the middle of a pandemic feels like steering around shipwrecks. Now, what they mean is uh, they've seen person after person, or couple after couple, I should say, uh, in their marriages falling apart. Probably this is uh, the first time uh, and for many of us in, in our generation that we've seen so many people going through difficulty at the same time for various reasons and uh, the pressure points are the most when it comes to those closest relationships with us and of course uh, the one that is often at focus for us is marriage. So marriages are under enormous pressure at the moment and so I think we need this teaching more than ever in this season and so I hope uh, that this will be um, so let's turn to, uh, let's have a look at the text, keep the text open for you. Look at number one, the goal, which is the renewal of marriage. Now, um, whenever you, this is, this is a bit of a danger, I guess, in jumping into any particular passage because of, of a um, text in the Bible, because you don't get the context, that is, what's around it. Now, typically, to the reach Marian, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, we'll teach like, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, or section by section, through a book of the Bible. So that, is, so that is, if you spend a bit of time with us, you will actually get to see how the particular scripture we're teaching on, which you know, brings out things that are relevant and, and helpful for us to learn uh, about ourselves, about uh, God, and about how we ought to live, um, how it fits into the context of the book as a whole. But when we do topical sermons like we are today, you don't get that. So I have to explain a little bit of context. And I think this is really important um, because 
when we look at the goal of marriage, I think probably the first thing to say about that is it is a renewal of God's good order. So whatever the culture says, and remember this was written 2,000 years ago, so so this was like uh, very relevant and important for uh, the culture in the church in Ephesus, uh, and it's still is relevant and important for us in modern day Australia 2,000 years later. Um, but we need to understand that uh, this is uh, written as an expression of uh, actually God's people responding to God's love for them. So if you've got your Bible open, uh, Ephesians 5 verse uh, 1 and 2, let me just read this out for you because that will help put things into context and help us to see actually this is about God's goodness and about setting things the way that he wants them to. So uh, Ephesians 5 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so then, like in the text, there's a whole lot of different, um, I guess, explanations about what that looks like. So the, the immediately after, at the beginning of chapter 5, see so the whole section on, like, how to live in your personal life. Like, don't get caught up in sexual immorality. Honor God with your body. Then we see a whole section on, like, living a... Uh, living life according to God's good order in the church. And the whole section explaining that. And then we see uh, a section which we're looking at today, how to live under God's good order within marriage. After that, so again, continuing out to look through the context, we see uh, chapter 6, uh, how to live under God's good order with children and parents. And actually we're covering that uh, topic next week. And then after that, talks about bond servants and masters. And probably the best equivalent today is employers or employees and, and employees like how to work within the how to operate within the workplace under God's good order. So, a couple of things to note about that: uh, God has order established. God, our God is not a God of chaos. He is a God of order, and He does things in the way which is best for His people. But I want you to notice, as as we sort of picked up um, in Ephesians five, uh, verses one and two, uh, this is an expression of God's responding to God's love for us. It says, walk in love as Christ loved us. So whenever we're thinking about how God wants us to do things, we must have first in our mind, this is a response to him and his love. It's not do this so that God will love you. It is God first loved us, therefore we respond to what he has done for us. I hope that makes sense for you. Now, uh, I, I mentioned, I guess we're talking about the, the goal of marriage, and under that heading, we're thinking about uh, God's room, the renewal of God's good order. Why do we need renewal? Now, why do we need things to come back to the way they should be? And that's because when we're left to our own devices uh, as humanity, things go askew. You know, you, if you can imagine a ship you know, sailing uh, towards a particular destination. And they have, um, you know, a, a sextant or a compass and, and they're trying to work out you know, which direction to go using sort of ancient, uh, navigating material. If, if that equipment is just a little bit off and they're going a, a long distance away, they're not going to end up at their destination. And so you must make sure that the thing that guides you and directs you is accurate. And for us, our guidance and direction, our compass, if you will, is God's word. And in our day and age, most people don't recognize now, there's, there's a couple of ways that uh, I think areas that need to be renewed when it comes to thinking about marriage. Uh, the first is uh, that uh, the world has 
and particularly in our Western culture, focuses on something called reciprocal rather than sacrificial love. So in our text today, the, the center point, the goal of marriage is this idea of sacrificial love, sort of typified by Jesus laying down his life for the sake of his people. And that's how the husband is to love the wife, and the wife uh, is to lovingly express it to her husband through submission and respect. But we've lost that. And in our culture today, we think about reciprocal love. We think that as long as both parties are doing their part, you know, as, as long as, uh, and maybe in a more traditional household, the, the, the man is, is, is working hard and, and the, the woman is maintaining the, the house and the family, as long as both parties are doing their part, everything will work out well. Of course, this gets a bit confusing because uh, traditional roles have changed. Uh, you know, there's less and less expectation that um, the wife will stay at home with the children. You know, many people have different views on that. We can't touch on that too much today. But to say that it's quite often to have both parents working. So then who does the housework? I mean, just like practically, right? This is like entry-level marriage stuff. You've got to work that out, right? If you're both working, it's not the woman's job to do it just based on tradition. You need to share stuff. This is something that we wrestle with in my household, uh, you know, because uh, my parents did things a certain way. My wife's parents did things a certain way. And so we have to work out how we are to do it given the particular uh, cultural conditions that we're in. But there is this sense in which if you keep up your end of the bargain, then we'll be happy. Now, this is, I guess, good uh, if it works. The problem is, what if the other person isn't keeping up their end of the bargain? Or what if you want them to do something for you and so you start doing stuff for them in order to get them to do things for you? This becomes a slippery slope, unfortunately, and very easy to do things like manipulation and a lot of disappointment in a relationship in marriage. You know, and, and a classic example, and we're going to touch on this in a couple of weeks, so don't be afraid of it, is sex, right? So think about it for a minute. Uh, men typically want sex more than women, uh, particular, uh, not always, but, but often, and uh, I mean, and some stereotypes, so let's just stick with it for a minute. And so sometimes you will find men doing things that will please their wife and, you know, like looking after them, you know, being a bit romantic in order to get what they really want, which is sex. Now, now are they actually being loving? Are they actually doing stuff? Or is this idea, is it just the idea of reciprocity? As in, you keep up your end and, and I'll keep up mine and then we'll be happy. But in reality, there are so many ways this can fall down. It's like a house of Okay, that's the first way that um, I think our society and our culture has got things out of order. Uh, the second one, uh, and this is um, this is a classic, and you'll see see this all over the media. It's the idea of soulmate love rather than servant. The idea of a soulmate. Now, um, a guy called uh, Bradford Cox from the uh, Institute for Family Studies, sort of one of the fellows there. Um, explains that there's kind of a model of a soulmate model of marriage that is really typical today. In fact, I think they did one study of like 18 to 25 year olds. It was like 94% of them, 18 to 25 year olds, which I know is a lot of you listening to this, uh, have this idea in your mind. And this is how they define it. It says, uh, soulmate, uh, model of marriage assumes marriage's primary function is to build and sustain an intense romantic or emotional connection that should last only as long 
as it remains happy, fulfilling, and life-giving to the self. Now, l- let me just say that last bit again, because this is like this is a very high bar to achieve. Uh, I'll read it all out. It says, it assumes marriage's primary function, that is soulmate love, is to build and sustain an intense romantic or, or emotional connection that should last only as long as it remains happy, fulfilling, and life-giving to itself. I mean, that is an enormously high bar. You're essentially saying, this one person that I'm you know, committing to for the rest of my life is going to satisfy my entire soul, is totally going to satisfy me emotionally. Do you think anyone can live up to that? Now, one of the problems with this is, um, and, and I love Disney movies, so don't take me this as like bagging them out, but there is a little problem. In that, in many Disney movies, uh, what you'll find is there's all this build up to the marriage and in the romance and in the sort of, you know, uh, in the preparation, this couple falling in love and then, you know, having to battle it out against, you know, some evil in order to finally be together. And that's like 95% of the movie. And then the 5% is them actually getting together. And then you, and then what we hear is they live happily ever after. Now, all of us who are married know that it's once you hit the marriage is where the trouble starts. So, but all we're taught in the Disney movies is all the kind of romance and intense kind of soulmate stuff beforehand. Can you imagine how conditioned we are to have these kind of expectations, but we have little to no tools on the things that we imagine in our culture as to what marriage ought to look like? It's, it's, it's really staggering in a sense. So what we get from uh, Disney movies is happily ever after. No explanation. Just go kind of do it. And uh, what we say when we do our vows typically are these words, for better or worse, rich or poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. These are at opposite ends of the spectrum. So yes, we do need a renewal of God's good order because our world has disordered marriage. And I think this typically has come up. Uh, and, and a good example is uh, in 2017 in Australia, so five years ago, there was a, a postal vote or plebiscite uh, on the nature of marriage. Now, uh, I think it was uh, just over 61% of Australians voted to change the definition and about 38%, roughly, uh, just over, of Australians voted that they, they didn't want to change it. Now, one of the reasons people uh, voted to change it is because they didn't see value in the current way that it's set up. And typically, uh, the way that marriage is, is, should be uh, and was designed is by God. And so some who uh, decided they didn't want that didn't see any value to the way God had set it up. But then 38% of Australians looked at marriage and went, no, there's something so important here that we shouldn't change it. But I would say that most of those couldn't articulate really why. You know, and I mean, it's no surprise that as understanding of marriage has decreased, the divorce rate has increased. As our desire to uphold marriage as God intends it has decreased, the destabilization of families has increased. So this is a cultural 
issue, but it is also a personal issue. It's something that we cannot avoid and it's something that we cannot ignore and it's something that we do need to engage with because it is something that God has established for our good. It is the place of family is within the marriage. Now, there is a broader family, which we're not going to touch on too much today, the church, which is supposed to be a beautiful reflection. We just see it in the text, a beautiful reflection of the family of God's people. But we cannot ignore that God has tied together a picture of human marriage the way that he loves his church. And so he upholds it highly, and it's something that's equally that we should uphold highly as we look at it. Uh, one other good thing, one other thing to say about renewal of God's good order. If you look in your text, uh, in your Bibles, uh, verse 31, uh, you actually see Paul quote Genesis. Uh, so I'll read verse 31. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So he is saying uh, that this order, this pattern, God's good order, has been set from creation before sin entered the world. And so it is something that we need to return to. And yet I want you to pick this really important point up that returning to it does not mean just going, okay, go and do what the Bible says in Genesis. It actually says, no, we need to focus our hearts on Christ because the goal of marriage, and as I said in my thesis, we're not going to really understand the goal of marriage until we see, as the text explains, how much Jesus loves his church and what he did for us. Okay, I just got to, um, I want to round out this, uh, this first point. I've spent a bit more time on it because I think it's really important to understand these things. Um, I want to round out this first point by giving you three applications. Uh, and, and these come out of an article, uh, I was doing a bit of reading on arranged marriages because, uh, uh, I didn't have an arranged marriage, but they do fascinate me. Um, the uh, statistic, I think, it, um, Tim Patrick put it out last week that only one in 20 arranged marriages, uh, end up in divorce and it's like 50%. Of uh, you know, sort of Western like choice marriages uh, end up in divorce, so there's a huge difference. So I looked, did a bit of digging into um, arranged uh, marriages, and uh, I picked up an article by a lady called Shireen Joseph, and they've been married for 20 years uh, from a traditional uh, Indian family. They moved uh, to the United States, and uh, they um, had a few things they wanted to, I guess, explain about uh, actually how they've got through because they. Even though their marriage is arranged, and I guess from a typical point of view, they're more likely to succeed, they found it extremely hard. And these are some of the things that they found to be helpful. So, uh, first application is marriage, the goal of marriage is about making us more like Jesus, not making us more happy in ourselves. Right? The goal of marriage is about making us more like Jesus, not just making us more happy in ourselves. We see in the text here as well, our happiness is found in Jesus, not the conditions of our marriage. If you, uh, if your happiness is found in how well your marriage is going, then you'll, you'll be on like a constant roller coaster. You can't predict that kind of thing. Uh, but rather, uh, we find that our, if our happiness comes from God and our sense, and happiness is, is not a great word actually. Our, our deep sense of self, our value, our purpose in life comes from Him, then our marriage will be fruitful and uh, be much more likely to succeed. So uh, this um, Lady Serene Joseph explained uh, it this way. She said uh, she may not have been taught that marriage was intended to make us happy, but it was displayed in the culture and community that formed her. 
and no one ever told me that holiness was integral to marriage. As far as I was concerned, God owed me. If I did everything right and was the perfect, dutiful wife, then it was my right to be happy. Moreover, my husband owed it to me to keep me happy no matter what. So you can see uh, there in this app, uh, from this article how easily culture can inform us to say that marriage is a, it's a kind of a happiness contract. And yet uh, we see that actually in our text, that is not the focus. The focus is making us more like Jesus. And actually if we, we source our happiness, our joy, a sense of uh, life and value in Jesus, and we have access something to give to our marriage, not, not to try to take from it. That's the first application. Second application uh, is this, that Jesus' own example, and this is really important, Jesus' own example needs to be our model for marriage, not our culture. Now, uh, I, I think we need to say this again and again to one another because I would say most of our expectations about marriage, and for those of you who aren't married but aspire to be married, and for those of you that are recently married, I'm sure that this is in your mind, that that uh, the overwhelming influence uh, that you have had when it comes to marriage has been from the culture and not from this text. Now, some of you have, have uh, probably dug into this text and wondered what it means, uh, but we need to actually, uh, as the Bible says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, uh, to actually change the way that we think uh, about marriage so that we're not framed just by the culture around us but by the Bible itself. Now, um, uh, this same... Uh, Lady who, uh, from the arranged marriage, Shireen Joseph, uh, talks about, uh, her, uh, example in this way. She says, Our upbringing, community, and culture shaped what my husband and I came to expect of marriage. Although we belonged to the same caste and had similar backgrounds, we were raised very differently and brought different expectations to the table. I felt uncomfortable because I did not fit into the expected mold. And I was not entirely sure what I brought to the relationship. Through this process, I learned how to surrender and trust God. I need to lean into my discomfort, let go of my control, and allow him to guide me. I learned to recognize my cultural expectations. And once I was able to let go of them, I found the freedom to, to discover what God was trying to teach me through my marriage. I just want to pick up on one point she said. I learned to recognize my cultural expectations. That is such an important thing that we need to do uh, as God's people. So that's the, so I've had a couple of points of application. One is, Marriage is about making us like Jesus, not just making us happy. Second is Jesus' example is our model, not our culture. And the third is pressure on marriages can be used for good or evil. So I want to use a couple of metaphors here. Uh, if you put pressure on a wine glass, I should, should have got a wine glass uh, for you, and there's, and there's wine in it, right? If you like hold it with both your hands and try and crush that thing, what will happen? The wine glass will break. You might cut your hand, and the wine will spill everywhere. Now, pressure on a marriage can be a bit like that. Squeezing until you see cracks appear, squeezing more until it starts to break, and eventually it shatters, and the wine inside spills out. And it's just everywhere. Pressure on marriages can be like that. There is another uh, metaphor that I want to use for marriage, and this is the one I want us to apply, and that is a muscle. Now, uh, typically when you apply pressure to a muscle, 
and when we're thinking of sort of exercise or bodybuilding, that kind of thing, and just generally keeping fit, you apply pressure to a muscle, sustained pressure, uh, not too much. Uh, what happens to the muscle? It rebuilds and grows bigger and is stronger and is more and is able to handle more weight or pressure. And that is God's goal for our marriages. That through the pressure of our circumstances, we would rebuild and grow stronger. So my question to you, to those who are married, to those who aspire, aspire to marriage, and to those who won't marry or have been married and now single, how will you be a part of, of enabling marriages to rebuild under pressure and grow stronger so that our people who are married will look more like Jesus? Because that is our goal. All right, I'm going to spend a little bit less time on our next uh, two points. So we've looked at, uh, firstly, the goal of marriage, which is a renewal. Going back to God's good order, centered on Jesus. Uh, the second point that I want to uh, look at is the difficulty. And this really centers on the responsibility of marriage. And um, this is where we get down to, okay, well, uh, what does it say in our text about wives and husbands? Now, I just want to clarify it's not speaking about men and women in general. This text has uh, been misused uh, many times uh, in uh, church history to apply generally to men and women. Or there's just kind of this idea that men are better than women or men in general have authority over women in general. That is not the case. Uh, the Bible is really specific. This is about husband and wives within a marriage covenant. And, and it's shaped particularly by Jesus' love for his church and our response to that. So we must get it out of our heads that uh, women must, by default, submit to men or something like that. That's not the case. Um, there's certain uh, roles and responsibilities within the church and within the family, particularly the marriage, uh, where men and women do have different roles, uh, and we're going to flesh them out. But this is not a general rule for men uh, across the board. So uh, we need to say that. Um, yeah, so let's dig into the difficulty, and I guess this comes out to the roles themselves. So uh, our text starts with referring to wives and how they are, but how they ought to respond to their husband. And we, we get a couple of key words here. Um, I was in verse 22, which I'll read out. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Okay, so we get this word submit, and then uh, right at the end of our section, verse 33, it says, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So there's these uh, two, I guess, applications uh, for uh, wives within the marriage covenant, which is they ought to, as part of their love, to submit to and respect their husband. Now, again, context is really important here. Um, we've already referred to uh, Ephesians uh, 2, uh, sorry, Ephesians 5 verse 2. Uh, which says to walk in love. So this whole um, uh, section is about the, the order, God's good order, uh, actually an expression of love, even the uh, submission and respect part. And then uh, also we must remember that the immediately prior verse to verse 22 is verse 21, which talks about everyone within the church, what does it say? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So every Christian should have now, let me get this clear. Should have as our default position be submitting to one another. What does that mean? It means 
honoring one another, putting the preferences of one another before ourselves, and obeying God's leadership structures and order that he has established. And when it works well, it honors God. When it's done rightly, it honors God. Now, uh, I think one of the first questions we need to ask before we get to the, because um, I, I know this is one of those controversial texts. So, I mean, it's good for us to go through it, right? So you see what the Bible really says. Um, and we'll get to that. But I, I actually want to uh, explain why, why is Paul teaching this? Like, why is he even explaining that this is how things ought to be unless there's a problem? And of course, there is a problem in our human heart. And this isn't just um, for women, this is for men too. But particularly in the marriage relationship, we need to flip our Bibles right back to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, so if you've got your Bible, flip back to Genesis chapter 3. And we see right from when sin entered the world, strife entered the marriage relationship. And it has a really specific, uh, I guess, look to it, which... Paul is actually addressing in the text here. Uh, I'm just going to read out just a, a very a short snippet of um, Genesis 3.16. Uh, this is uh, God speaking to um, Eve. And he says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall be over you. Now, that's actually a negative. Uh, that's actually God saying, this is what sin will do. So the ruling over in, in that text is not a positive uh, in Genesis 3.16. It's a negative. It's saying uh, men will misuse their authority within the uh, the marriage relationship to rule over, to domineer, to be tyrants, um, avoid responsibility, but they won't do things right. But the wife within the marriage relationship will try and undermine her husband, will be contrary to the will of her husband. She'll seek her own will, not God's will, uh, through honouring her husband in the way that God created him. Now, um, I guess I need to make another qualifier here, and I should have done this earlier, but um, not only uh, does this text is just referring to um, husbands and wives within a marriage relationship, but it also uh, is really clear to say that, uh, and we see this, like completely reflected throughout the Bible, that men and women are equal before God. There's no hierarchy that men are better than women. Yes, men were created before women, and so there is an order of creation, and therefore we do see an order um, within the male-female relationship in marriage. Uh, but men and women are absolutely equal uh, before God because we, are both, we both bear the image of God, and so we must uphold and protect that and honour God's intention and the way that he has made us. So the issue uh, which Paul's addressing, the the, the reason why he's uh, speaking to wives is to say to them that they need to submit to their husbands and to respect them is because uh, within the marriage relationship, the wife's default is to her own will. Not to do what her husband wants, not to honour him, as we know that's just true for all Christians that we see in verse 21. And, and Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, if it's true for all Christians, how much more then for your spouse? How much more for your husband wives? Um, so there is, uh, yeah, there's a huge, uh, huge issue here in the human heart. And this is what we're addressing. Now, I guess um, we need to address that this is not popular in our culture today. Uh, this is not a popular teaching 
uh, whatsoever in our culture today. Uh, when we think about, um, you know, the idea of uh, su- submission, uh, in, in particularly in Western cultures, like we get all these ideas that come to mind, words like patriarchy, um, you know, abuse, and let's be fair, those things have been done and they have been wrong. The, the role of uh, men and women, particularly uh, men in the husband-wife relationship, has been abused and has been taught wrongly. It hasn't been a self-sacrificial love where the husband is a lay down his life for the wife. It's been a domineering control. But just because uh, sin has entered the world does not mean, in fact, it's even more of a reason we need to turn back to God's good order, not to reject it. And I actually think the primary problem is not just the sin that's entered the world, uh, but it is that when we think about uh, submission and respect within the husband and wife relationship, we have bad examples in our mind and a bad definition. And if you, if you look, just glance over this portion of text, you will see that most of it, right, it doesn't explain the minutiae about you know how we ought to like what we ought to do. It's really principles based on the work of Jesus for his church. And so, again, my thesis stands, unless you get uh, what Jesus has done for his church, you will not get now Christian marriage. That is our primary focus uh, here. Now, we've uh, looked at wives for a minute and uh, their sort of, I guess, and briefly, uh, the responsibilities, particularly as expressions of um, uh, love and submission within the marriage relationship, now we turn to look at husbands. So there's a couple of uh, words uh, that come to mind here. One is love. Uh, and we see that several times in the text. And we see particularly uh, verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So again, what husbands uh, do is also to be a reflection of what Jesus has done for his church. Now, we must ask ourselves the question, just like we did uh, with wives, why are husbands taught this specific thing? Because husbands' default position, and I think we've kind of covered this earlier, is to rule over their wives. That is domineering leadership abuse of their role within the marriage to dominate and become tyrants. That is often our default. Now, that's not the only default, because there is another one, which is equally sinful, and that is abdication of responsibility. And so typically our default, when we're just wanting to serve ourselves, when men are just wanting to serve themselves, husbands particularly, just want to serve themselves, they will either domineer to get what they want, that is, the root of this is selfishness, or they will abdicate responsibility because of fear, and essentially they're still doing what they want. They don't want to take responsibility, so they will avoid it. But husbands in this text are called to love their wives and to lay down their lives for their wives, to lead their wives. There's a, there's a real sense of servant leadership here, to lead their wives in a way that they would be more like Jesus, which is this beautiful um, explanation of it. Verse 29. Uh, and sort of a, the um, the metaphor used is the, is the body. And it says, verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church. And therefore it goes on 
that this is how we ought to treat one another, uh, men particularly, to treat their wives within the marriage relationship, to nourish and cherish them. That is not. That does not smell of domineering control. That does not smell of uh, avoiding responsibility. Now, again, our culture has problems with this. Uh, our culture has problems with this at both ends. Uh, we see this, uh, and, and this, some of this has been exposed now, that domineering leadership from men has been exposed and is, and is an evil thing, and God is the one who's allowed it to be exposed. Now, people go too far, you know, cancel culture, you know, like we overreach injustice all the time, right? So I'm not saying the way the world handles this is right, but God is exposing evil, and we must acknowledge that. But also, our default, and certainly men's uh, default in the marriage, is to ab- uh, abdicate responsibility. We mustn't accept that either. And our culture looks at these things, and, and particularly in Australia, we have this thing called tall poppy syndrome, where we see uh, leadership taking place, uh, good, even good leadership sometimes, we will cut it down just by our nature. We must hold back against that. So, uh, as you can tell, uh, these things are hard. Right? To, to, to actually, it, it seems like a fine line we're trying to tread. But on the, on the one hand, we're, we're to honour one another uh, and, and, and to uh, submit to one another and wives particularly submit and respect the husbands. Husbands particularly servantly lead the wives uh, and lay down their lives, lay down their ambition, uh, put the, the wife's needs before their own as Jesus has done. See, both of these uh, things happening uh, and we realise that man, this is difficult. Like, how are we supposed to pull this off? It, you know, it, it seems like uh, this is a kind of a, a tightrope almost, that if we lean too far on the one side, we're going to fall over. And if we lean too far on the other side, we're going to fall over there too. You know, if, let me put it this way, if marriage is about giving, that is submission and respect, giving submission and respect, and serving, that is self-sacrificial love rather than getting and taking, if it really is about those things, then what happens if the other person isn't fulfilling their own you know, like this, and you can probably, as you read this, you go, yeah, this would work if both were doing the right thing. But what if one, and what if the husband or the wife isn't doing it? What if the wife isn't uh, submitting to and uh, respecting the husband? What if the husband is a domineering tyrant? Should the wife then still su- submit to and respect her husband? You know, and, and again, we need to qualify this. This has been used to cover abuse, and we must say that where, when abuse is taking place, women must. And particularly, and, and I, I know that uh, sometimes men are abused by women in the marriage relationship. That does happen, but, but predominantly it is women abused by men. Um, when women are being abused, we must make them safe. Abuse is not okay. We are not in a condition of hushing up. We're not uh, in the business of hushing things up. Uh, we must not allow evil to take place uh, continually and enable it. And our church has always held that uh, as a position as well. But how do we hold these things together? How do we do it? You know, do we build up a debt that the other person must repay? You know, as in, if the person keeps not keeping up their end of the bargain, do we just get angrier and angrier and more and more bitter that they haven't done what they want? Or do we become a doormat? Just, you know, just putting up with it, essentially. Just, you know, well, this is just how it is. I'm locked in now. Is that how we respond? Or perhaps we consider divorce. 
because they're not fulfilling their end of the marriage. Now, I want you, well, I'm not <laughs> suggesting we do any of those things, but I'm pointing out because that is how we function. But I want to uh, remind you of a couple of things. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That is, you will not be able to truly submit to your husband unless you are trusting and submitting to Jesus. Unless he fills up your heart, you are not going to be able to do this, particularly when the pressure's on. Husbands, you are not going to be able to do this unless, verse 25, says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Unless you get how much Jesus loves the church, you will not be able to do this. You cannot do it in your own strength. You will err on either side. There is a straight and narrow path, but it is not one that you walk on the tightrope alone. It is one where you are focused on Christ Jesus. That's why both of these verses have qualifiers to them, uh, which say, as to the Lord or as Christ loved the church. When we get these things, then our Relationships are rightly ordered and they stop being uh, the most difficult part and they become the most enjoyable part of our lives. Now, let me say that you will, you will have difficulty. Everyone will have difficulty in marriage. But when we understand that God is using it for good, that He's applying this pressure that we would turn to Him and not uh, try and rule things ourselves, then uh, we actually find it very well. Now, for the sake of time, I find it hard to keep track of time, by the way, um, using uh, this online format. But uh, for the sake of time, um, I just want to explain this to you, I guess, by reading something out uh, from a very uh, helpful uh, book. Uh, it's called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. And there's just a, a story which kind of explains how this works uh, in real life. Um, I'm going to use that uh, to conclude and help you finish the service. I do have uh, some other points of application. You might find a way to uh, send them out to our GC groups who does some coaching. This week. So let me read this out. Uh, this is uh, a, a story explaining this. It says All his life, Rob had few friends. One reason for this was that since childhood, Rob had a real problem putting himself into the shoes of others. He had little or no empathy and often was surprised at people's negative reactions to his words or words. When he was in fourth grade, a school counselor told his parents that the thought uh, Rob was a Mild sociopath, imagine that. Someone who often trampled on the feelings of others because he couldn't sympathetically imagine what they were feeling. This character flaw created problems for Rob for years, but he couldn't see it for what it was. A few of his acquaintances ripened into friendships, and in his first jobs he regularly made missteps that infuriated both superiors and those reporting to him. He lost one job over. Then he met Jessica. And by the second date they were both deep into the in-love experience. She thought that he was a brilliant conversationalist, and he was, and he loved the fact that she was an assertive kind of woman who didn't easily get her feelings hurt. Several times his sense of humour strayed into the realm of hurtful and the insulting. This was a problem that he had had all his life, but unlike so many others, Jessica told him off and put him in his place. He liked that. Finally, a woman who wasn't a shrinking violet. And so they married, but as the months went by, Rob's insensitive humour and semi-abusive remarks got worse. When we are in love, we are on our best behaviour, but at home, with someone becoming more and more familiar, our natural instincts take over. 
we no longer catch ourselves. Soon the full extent of Rob's problem character was there for Jessica to see in all its ugly detail. Jessica began to see how he spoke to other people, and most of them were not as resilient and thick-skinned as she was. She realized the kind of relational problems that he was going to have all his life. She became deeply disillusioned with him, and just a year after their wedding, she be, she found herself fantasizing about being single again and free from him. When Rob, when Rob realized the depth of her unhappiness, he became alarmed, and together they sought counseling from the pastor of their church. They began a long journey. After many weeks of meetings with a pastoral counselor, they had their first breakthrough. One evening, both Rob and Jessica began to see that she had been brought into Rob's life for this very purpose. She was a strong woman who was not fragile. She was exactly the person who could stand toe-to-toe with Rob and say, that hurt me. I'm going to tell you exactly how it felt until you learn what your words do to other people. I'm not going to clam up on you and just withdraw, and I'm not going to attack you back. I'm going to be like Jesus has been with us, accepting us in love but not allowing us just to destroy ourselves with sin. Rob had never had anyone love him like this. People had either given up and withdrawn from him or had simply attacked him. He was someone who calmly but candidly described the devastating effect of his words. And the most transforming of all was the fact the person who was telling him about his hurtfulness was the person he loved most in the world. The more Jessica loved him so nobly and well, the less he wanted to see her hurt. And so, slowly but surely, Rob began to listen, learn, and change. Jessica herself came to see that she also had a need for radical change. I had a fiercely independent spirit that made it hard for me to depend on anyone, she said. If anyone let me down, I simply dropped them. I was completely impatient with them. When she saw the depths of Rob's problem, she wanted to flee as she always had, but her marriage wouldn't allow her to do that. For the first time in her life, she couldn't run from a damaged person. Three years after their wedding, Rob's parents hardly recognized him. He was a more thoughtful and empathetic than they could ever thought he could be. Jessica's parents noticed a gentleness and graciousness towards weakness that they hadn't seen in her before. Marriage is power of truth. Father God, we thank you for this beautiful example of uh, what it means to be in a marriage relationship, what it means to have one centered on Lord Jesus, what you've done. We pray that you would help us uh, in our church to see marriage the way that you see. No matter where we're at, whether we're single, married, divorced, widowed, we ask that you would help us to be people who focus firstly on Christ. And what he has done for us is to respond in kind in the way that you have designed marriage, to uphold it, to cherish it, to encourage it. Uh, we thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for this technology. Uh, Lord God, we pray that you would help us in this time. Thank you for all your faithfulness in Jesus' name. See you in a week.